Um, hey, we want to get going. We're, we're doing a series called You, You. The idea is that we got to look at, at ourselves and understand ourselves in order to connect to God. we got to understand who we are in relationship to God to actually grow. And um, one of the funny things just that as I started thinking about this is that there's actually kind of stories about ourselves that we don't know about ourselves. Some of you guys have friends who actually remember your life better than you do. You know that friend? Uh, or your parents, right? They might have stories that you don't even know about yourself. My, my, my mom loves to tell a story when I was a little kid. She might go to somebody's house and, you know, the moms are getting together or whatever and the kids would be down in the basement and so she would send me down to the basement. I don't know anybody, but I would walk down the stairs of the basement. She loves to tell the story about how I got to the bottom of the stairs and I, I showed up and I just go, hey kids, it's Jim Bobbers, you know? <laughs> Like, just so open and, like, just I want to be known. And isn't that just beautiful? And I swear if any of you ever call me that, there's another church right down the street in Lafayette that you ought to go to. So, um, yeah, no, and so I just had this, like, willingness to be known. And she tells another story about how we moved into a new neighborhood and I went out one time and I had some kind of bell with me or something and I was ringing it, walking through the neighborhood. It's like our first, like, week and I'm ringing it and I'm just yelling, friend. Friends, I, I want friends, you know, and I was so cute. I mean, who wouldn't want to be friends with that? Uh, it, although I look at that picture and I just think, man, the scissors worked on the front, but I don't know what happened on the sides there, mom. Uh, but, but that was me, and I got to just ask the question, what happened? What happened to me? At first, I was so cute and I had hair, but second, like, why am I so closed off now? What happened to me where I became more private? and more dignified, respectable, you know, which is code for isolated. Like, what happened to me? I'll tell you what happened to me. Middle school is what happened to me, you guys. <laughs> middle school. We, we get to middle school and we meet somebody who didn't have to have braces, whose parents bought them all the most expensive clothes, who the girls liked more than us, and who happened to be mean. And so our, like, just gregarious nature of putting ourselves out there and wanting to have friends just gets trampled on by somebody. And we learn really quickly to be defensive and to kind of hide and to become more private. We call it private. But it's really a protection mechanism. It reminds me a little bit of what, what we can become. It reminds me of this farm that's right down the street from my house. Guys, I, I drive by this farm almost every day, and I laugh my head off. Look at the picture I stopped and took uh, this week. Okay, those first five rows are of corn. Anybody want to guess what that is behind the corn? Come on, guys, this is Colorado. It's a marijuana farm. You got a marijuana farm, and the farmer, I love this. I love that the farmer put up five rows of corn thinking, I'm going I'm to trick everybody. <laughs> Nobody's going to know what I'm growing behind this wall of corn. Yeah. Don't we do that? Don't we put up little corn walls to people? And we kind of try to hide, like not successfully, the stuff that's actually going on behind the scenes inside of us. And we don't let people in because we put a corn wall up. And this goes against the way we're designed. It goes against the very nature of God. You guys heard me say before, God is not one. God's three, Father, Son, Spirit. Why? Because God's relational. 
at the very nature of God himself is this desire to be in relationship. And the scripture says we are made in God's image. And so the Cornwall actually goes against our design. We're not living into our design if we're going to keep people out. We're going to get into that. Let's deal with this like for reals today. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd help us to do that, that you'd help us to lean in and understand how you have designed us. And, God, that you would help us to take the courageous steps that we need to move toward you and to move toward wholeness in our relationships with other people. Let it be a reflection of you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to um, start by showing you what I think is the most unlikely friendship in all the Bible. There's a, there's a friendship that happens in the scripture that you just go, what in the world? How could those two possibly be friends? You go back 3,000 years in early uh, history of Israel. Israel was kind of doing their thing. They didn't actually have anybody who was like the leader, king person. They kind of traded leadership here and there. They called them judges. But then Israel started saying, all the other countries around us have kings, and we want a king too. And God said back to the people, like, are you sure you want a king? You know what's going to happen to you if you get a king? We don't care. We just want a king. And so God gives them a king. And the king's name, guys, you're just going to be blown away by this drawing. That's a crown. The king's name is Saul. It's not Saul from the New Testament. There's a New Testament Saul whose name becomes Paul, and that's who writes a lot of the New Testament. This This is a different Saul. This is Saul of the Old Testament, first king of Israel. Scripture says he was tall and handsome and strong and kind of like my twin. You know, they think about that a little bit. Just look here and you'll see. No, no. So he's this tough guy, and he's a warrior. He's a fighter, and he has a kid, and his kid's name is Jonathan. Now, if you're Jonathan, let me ask you this. Do you have to go to college? Do you need to get your resume all ready to go? Do you need to get an internship and work your way up the ladder? What's Jonathan's future vocation? He's the oldest king of the son, or uh, uh, oldest son of the king. I said that backwards. <laughs> oldest son of the king is going to be king, right? He, his future's already figured out. Anybody who's watched anything that has to do with how kings think about their legacy in line, you know what will a king guard more fiercely than anything else? They're going to guard their son. They're not going to let anything come between them and their future, their legacy of their son becoming king. Jonathan is in line to be king, but they've got a problem. And we've been talking about this guy throughout this whole series. There's a guy named David. David comes along, and David is this little shepherd boy. He's got nothing going for him. He's not big and tall like Saul is, and nobody's talking about him. In fact, his dad even forgets to mention him in a conversation. But David steps up in this battle against this foreign army with one guy named Goliath. A lot of us know the story. And David's the one who volunteers to go to the front line and he kills Goliath. Okay, we, a lot of us know that story. But what we don't know is what happens after that. What happens is that the people start to love this guy. So 
Imagine it. I mean, imagine this happening, right? He's going to become a hero. Can you believe the little shepherd boy came out of nowhere and killed Goliath? I mean, you can, you can just hear the people talking about this story. Jonathan wasn't the one. Jonathan didn't do that. Saul couldn't even do it. No, it was this little shepherd boy who came forward with a slingshot and he killed the... Like, that's the conversation. And they actually start even singing songs about him. They start, there's a song that the scripture records where they're talking about Saul and David, and they say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David, he's killed his tens of thousands. Let me ask you, how's Saul going to feel about this? What do you think Saul is thinking about David? Uh, not going to like him. And you guys know, man, there's nothing that'll stop a king, especially one with the dark side like Saul's got, major dark side. Nothing going to stop him from making sure that his son, not David, becomes king someday. But then something crazy happens. Something that you look at and you go, how is that possible? I want to show you the story from 1 Samuel 18. Samuel's a, a book, just an Old Testament book that helps give some of the history of these kings. It's just fun reading. 1 Samuel 18 talks about the very unlikely thing that unfolds. Look at this. This is verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul about some of their battles and stuff that they were going on, finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them. For Jonathan loved David. So what's that about? Doesn't Jonathan have more to lose from David than just about anyone? Why in the world would he take a liking to the guy that actually did, in the end, take over what was his birthright? How do they become friends? That's crazy. Look at, look at the next verse. It says this, from that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. Saul immediately notices this friendship's not a good thing. Hey, th this has got me nervous now. We need to keep this guy at an arm's distance. Why in the world would my son become friends with his biggest competitor? And so Saul starts looking at David and says, you can't even go home. You need to kind of stay here. It's kind of this is what's going on. I'm watching you, right? I got you. Look, but, but look what happens now in verse 3. Okay, keep going. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David. Because he loved him as he loved himself. You know, um, there's these little books that uh, people like us who give talks like this read. They're called commentaries. A commentary is just, uh, you can read it. It gives you comments on the scripture. It helps you understand some of the background. and helps you kind of dive into it more and, and, and go more deeply. It's, it, they are worth reading. I can tell you, in reading these commentaries, the one thing I have never heard any commentator talk about is what happened between these two that made them friends? Like, you just read these kind of two verses and all of a sudden they're buddies. What happened? Why did he take a liking to David? Why, why, what happened with these guys' relationship that defies the odds here? This is a weird friendship that's developed. What happened? doesn't say, but I got a theory. And I think this goes to the heart of the friendships that we need to make with other people. That, that this is the recipe 
for what God wants to do in our lives. Look at verse 4. Here's the hint. Verse 4 says this. Jonathan sealed the pact that he made with David by taking off his robe. By the way, the robe is a sign of kingship. Jonathan is actually saying, maybe you will be king someday. He gives David his robe. He gives it to David together with his tunic, just like a loose-fitting shirt. And he gives him, look what he else he gives. He gives him his sword and his bow and his belt. You're going to hand your competitor a sword and a bow? Isn't, I mean, if David were any different, isn't this the kind of thing that ends up in your back? That sword, like, man, I, I'm stunned by this. Jonathan has just done something, and we see here just indirectly, we see what I think exactly is the key ingredient of any strong relationship. And I think this is why you see them become friends so quickly. Jonathan's vulnerable. Nothing more vulnerable than handing who should be maybe your top enemy a sword. And yet he does. He risks this. He puts himself on the line. He, he shows this incredible vulnerability to David. I want you to think for a second of any great friendship you have. I would be shocked to hear that if in that great friendship there wasn't vulnerability at its core. That part of what makes a great relationship real is just the reality of you actually being you, taking the corn wall down and showing and revealing what's really under the surface, the pain, the trauma, the hurt the dreams, whatever it is, to actually share that and and risk that into another person's hands. That's exactly what's going on between David and Jonathan. I want you to see what Saul does, though. Because this is great, right? Oh, that's nice, and that's neat, and fuzzy, warm story, but no, there's still a problem. Let's skip ahead to chapter 19. I want you to see what happens. Saul Saul now urged his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. We've got to get rid of him. But Jonathan, because of his strong affection for David, told him what his father was planning. He goes to David, and look what he says. He says, tomorrow morning, you must find a hiding place out in the fields, and I'll ask my father to go out there with me, and I'll talk to him about you. Because they're still trying to figure out, what is Saul's position on this? Saul is a liar, you guys. Saul's going to say one thing and do another, and he's even lying to his own son. So, but Jonathan says, I'm going to try to find out what he's really thinking. So the next morning, Jonathan spoke with his father about David. The king must not sin against his servant David, Jonathan says to Saul. He's never done anything to harm you. He's always helped you in any way that he could. Have you forgotten about the time he risked his life to kill the giant and how the Lord brought a great victory to all Israel as a result? You were certainly happy about it then, Dad. Why should you murder an innocent man like David? There's no reason for it at all. Now listen to what Saul says. So Saul listened to David, uh, Jonathan and vowed, oh yeah, surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. If you guys know the story, man, that's the whole rest of the book really is Saul trying to hunt down David and wipe him out. And David continuing to be humble and not, not trying to kill Saul in return. In fact, he has a chance to and he doesn't. But Jonathan's kind of in this weird middle position. Now look at uh, chapter 20. I want you to see another thing here that happens. It'll tell you a little bit more that goes to the core of the relationship between David and Jonathan. So now David, he's on the run. David now fled from Nioth in Ramah and found Jonathan. And he says to him, "This this is the big moment where he comes to Jonathan and says, what have I done? 
It's looking now like Saul definitely wants to kill me. What have I done? What's my crime? How have I offended your father so much that he's determined to kill me? Now, Jonathan is still under the idea that Saul is not trying to kill him. That's not true. You're not going to die. He always tells me everything he's going to do, even the little things, right? Jonathan's a little naive about what his dad's up to. I know my father wouldn't hide something like this from me. It just isn't so. Now look at what David says. Then David took an oath before Jonathan said, listen to me. Your father knows perfectly well about our friendship. And he has said to himself, I won't tell Jonathan. Why should I hurt him? He's concealing from you, Jonathan. But I swear to you, and this is so heartfelt, I swear to you that I am only a step away from death. I swear it by the Lord and by your own soul. In other words, he's saying to Jonathan, you're the only one who can help me. I'm dependent on you. Guys, what did David just do? He just practiced vulnerability. He's coming back to his friend and saying, I, I got to have you. I'm scared to death and I got to have you. And then Jonathan ends this little passage by saying, tell me what I can do. Tell me what I got to do to help you. You know what's so funny? These guys are being vulnerable. These are tough guys. These are like warrior guys. And yet they're, they're practicing something that for a lot of us, I'll speak for guys today, we kind of lost this, didn't we? Some of you guys might know who, and you're listening, some of you thinking, oh, that sounds like Brene Brown. Uh, some of you know who Brene Brown is. She's a uh, sociologist, brilliant. And she talks a lot about the courage behind being vulnerable, putting yourself out there with somebody else, letting somebody in behind the Cornwall. That's what she talks about. I was first introduced to her about 10 years ago, and she did her kind of first TED Talk that kind of made her famous. And I, it was the first time I'd ever heard of her. I was sitting in a room with a group of 40 people who were elders at a church. And we were sitting and we were watching this Brene Brown TED Talk. And she's talking about the key to vulnerability and friendship and cur how courageous that is. And she finishes. And the person who was kind of leading the time turned to the crowd of elders and said to them, what do you guys think of that? A couple of people said here and there some things. And then I'll never forget one guy raised his hand and he said, you know, that was good stuff. I think that's a great example of feminine courage. Let me say that again. I think that's a great example of feminine courage. Male courage is more like when you go out and take the hill and beat up Goliath. Feminine courage is being vulnerable. Anybody here struck wrong by that, by the way? <laughs> I'll tell you, what was interesting, there's a room of 40 elders, great church. You know how many people challenged him on that statement? Zero. Not a single person got in his grill. Guys, <laughs> let me just talk to the guys in the room for a second. Good Lord, don't buy that lie. You know how much courage it takes to actually present who you really are to other people and not play into this stupid image that our culture has created about what it means to be a man. Have we devolved that much? 
in 3,000 years? Is courage taken the hill and beaten Goliath? Absolutely. Is courage sharing who we really are with another person and being vulnerable, even if it risks hurt and pain in return? Maybe even more so. And yet for some of us in our culture, man, we got taught something that wasn't true. And some of us will take that lie to the grave with us, and it is absolutely tragic. I've got a, um, there's a couple in this church that I know that I love, and they've gone through some hard stuff. And specifically, they've been going through a hard thing around infertility, and I know that's, for a lot of couples, such a huge deal. And their story actually turns and is positive and has a happy ending. For a lot of us, I know in this room, this story isn't. Whether it's infertility or something else, that story's still ongoing. But I actually want you to see this story, and what I want you to pay attention to as they share it is the process that they went through and and wondering, how am I going to involve other people in this? Will I or won't I? Check this out. I'm Emily. I'm Chris. And we're the Deardorfs. We've been coming to Ascent since the hotel days, and we've known this was home ever since. The last three to five years for us have included um, a journey through infertility. There's an element to which you think your life is going to go one way, and when you find yourself in a different point, and you say, this isn't what I wanted for my life, or this isn't what I thought it would look like. It kind of became this very isolating experience for us, and we really felt alone. Because we, you know, you just think in your head, oh, no one else is going through this. They don't know, they don't know what this is like. I remember feeling... Um, like I didn't fit because my friends were having kids and I didn't belong with the new parents, but I didn't belong with the next age group either. And I think a lot of times we just felt in between and awkward <laughs> and, and people would assume like, oh, they must not want kids or something's wrong with them. And that's a real point where you have to ask God, like, are you good? Is is what you say true? What do I think about you? I mean, I remember it really just challenged some of my core, um, I don't want to say core beliefs, because I knew that God was still good, but you have to ask, is it enough? Is God's goodness enough, even if I don't get the thing I wanted? And so to be able to tell that to the people in our small group and say, I'm struggling right now. I'm, I don't know how to have more hope. Um, and I remember Vic Gula said, I'll hope for you. And that was so helpful to have somebody say like, I know you can't hope right now, but I have a lot of hope for you and you can just borrow mine. That was so helpful. You know, the spirit just really led a lot of people in our group um, to just, you know, I think fill us up with love and support when I think we didn't really have any. They would, um, you know, Vic would come up to me and just ask point blank, how are things going with fertility? And nobody else did that for me. Um, You know, the Luthers, they would say, how are things going? We know what it's like. They would think back to their experiences and how much it hurt, and they would cry with us. And just knowing that, like, people understood. I try to imagine, like, what if we didn't share with people in our small group, like, our struggles with infertility? I think our experience, our perspective, and everything we went through from that point forward would have been so much more difficult. But for us to, to share and you know, to, to have people really like surround us the way they did, I mean, it was life changing. 
The, the part of that story that I just was totally struck by that jumped out at me when he first said it, it was toward the end there, and Chris says, uh, what if I hadn't shared that? What if I hadn't talked about it? What if we hadn't brought other people in? And I just my immediate thought was I didn't know exactly what happened. And just part of being a pastor at a church for 20-some years is you see stories and you see the results of what happens when we put up the Cornwall and we don't let people in behind the scenes of what's actually happening. And, and for those of us who are guys, sometimes we get to retain our sense of being a tough guy, but we lose our humanity in the process. And I've seen it. Um, I'll tell you a story about a guy that I knew um, in California, and I'll change some of the details to you know, protect identities. But uh, there's a guy who was an older guy, probably late 80s, early 90s, World War II vet. Amazing stuff this guy had seen and done, super successful. Um, a guy that was so highly respected in the community, except he had an issue that was going on behind the surface. And that was some of the stuff that he'd seen. He had seen his friends die. He had seen people wiped out. He had pulled the trigger himself in the war. And he carried that. And he was part of a generation where you just don't talk about that kind of thing. And so he came back to the States after the war and to share that would be considered weak. And so he bottled it. And certainly you'd never go see a therapist because that's for crazy people. And that's what he was told. And so he lived into his life for years. And the only reason that I know anything that happened to him in the war is because one night we went out and he had, I don't know how many beers. And it all came out. And he's in tears. And he spent his whole life trying to compensate for this emotional scarring and wounding that he never felt like he could share because it wasn't what he was told what it meant to be a man. And so he hid it. And he medicated it. Because what we do is, you know, it's, it's, uh, you hear about like the deadly cycle. People talk about that. I actually think it's a little different on this case. We, we start here and stuff happens to us, right? Every single person in this room, you got something that you're going through right now that is painful or that you have in the past. It's painful and you kind of end up in this cycle where things are great, things are not so good. And here's the choice right here at the bottom where you have the opportunity to either be vulnerable or you medicate it with something else and that's what he did. He threw himself into his job. Man became a star in the workplace. And oh yeah, alcohol at night was a great thing too to kind of help with that because I don't actually want to process my emotions. And so when you medicate something with alcohol or work or eating or buying stuff, you get a, you get a lift. And that's why we do it because it's easier in the short run. You get a lift, but you're only lifted a little bit lower than your last high. And then the pain returns again and it's a little bit lower than the last low. And so it's not like a cycle, it's actually a spiral. And that's exactly what had happened to this guy. And seven marriages later, 
and running people over at work because of the anger in him. Here's tears pouring out of this guy because the alcohol had finally set him free to share what he desperately needed to share 50 years earlier. God, help us on this. I tell you, this is, um, I believe this is so true, an unprocessed past. You got an unprocessed past or an unprocessed present, the stuff you're going through right now, it'll ruin your future. Poor case of this guy, it didn't just ruin his future, it ruined some other people's too. Kids, stepkids, marriages, people at work. We're not just walking through this life on our own. To actually let people in behind the corn wall is a gift that you bring to other people as well. What are we going to do about this? <laughs> I just want to ask you, what's your next step with this? Do you have people where you can authentically be you, where you're willing to risk? I know that people have harmed us in the past. I totally get it. And I am, that's why this is so courageous. To be able to, even though we've been harmed by someone, to let somebody in, to try again, is an unbelievably courageous act. Guys, that's why we've got this week, honestly, what, what Bill talked about up here with all the stuff going on this week, men's tonight, women's, high school, middle school, college, young adults, 55 and older, core groups. You know why we do all that stuff? It's because if you go, our board showers bonuses on us, and we just get, <laughs> we get tons of money based on your attendance. No. Why do we, we do it? Because that's what we're called to as a church. And you don't grow by yourself. You don't grow with the Cornwall. You grow when you let down the facade and you let other people in. And our job is to be a platform to make sure that at every single chance we can that we're letting, giving you the opportunity, if you want to take it, it's there. It's there to take. Um, I was thinking about this week and all the stuff coming up. There's a ton of reasons not to come. Can I just make sure you know some of the reasons? Let's look at some of the reasons not to come. It's football season. Okay. There's a couple games on this week. Uh, my kid needs me for homework. And I just want to say, if you have a high schooler, their math is beyond you by now. So just don't even pretend. Okay. I have an exam. These are real things. I'm not actually putting them down. I don't know anybody. Yeah, it's, it takes courage to walk into a room. Work is really busy right now, yes. And I don't know what they do there. And, and I, I guess on that last one, I say that's a valid concern. I just ask you to trust us. If you feel comfortable walking in this room, we make all the environments that we do comfortable for people to walk into. We're not going to sit you down with somebody and share your deepest, darkest secret. That's not how it works. Right? We know that that takes time and effort and energy. But guys, none of those, look at that list again. None of, the, none of these excuses or none of these reasons, they're valid. Are they bigger than this one? <laughs> Do these guys have a bigger reason to not be vulnerable with each other? You, you could argue yes. This is, this is pretty high stakes here. The stakes are high for us too. And we want to invite you into that. Maybe the biggest reason of all, and, and I'll end with this, biggest reason of all to live into this idea of being vulnerable with other people. You guys, Jesus, the God of the universe who came to earth, was vulnerable. Think about him for a second. 
born in the backwoods, not in Rome? Born in a cave, not a palace? Grew up building chairs instead of sitting in a throne? Chose a bunch of buddies who were fishermen instead of people that would make him look good? Rides into Jerusalem on a donkey instead of like a war horse? Picks friends, one of whom would betray him, instead of just being a solo act? One of his friends denies that he exists three times, and yet he's open and vulnerable enough to come back to him and say, I believe in you. And then ultimately, the God of the universe, who's got all the cards at his disposal, willing to be nailed to a cross. What's more vulnerable than that when he could have snapped his fingers and wiped us out? Gosh, we are called as people to live into the image of Christ to the extent that we can, and there may be no better way to do that than being vulnerable with somebody else because that's how Jesus operated. That's how Jesus rolled. Lord, help us to do it. God, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you'd help us to take a step of vulnerability and courage in some way with someone. If it means just even coming up to be prayed for after the service, that that would be a first step, or coming tonight or tomorrow night or sometime this week. Or maybe it's just a prayer that we have where we start with you and we say, God, I first need to deal with you on the way I've been wounded in the past. But God, I pray that, um, I pray that my brothers and sisters here would leave this space determined to become more of a human being the way you have created us to be. Help us put aside that corn wall, Lord. And God, as we pray and we sing now to you, this act of vulnerability is really an act of surrender. Would you help us to surrender all to you? We pray that in Christ's name, amen.